0: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning, church. Our scripture this morning is Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, you guys grab a quick seat. We are in Colossians chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. We have been looking at this passage for the last several weeks, and honestly, I had several conversations this over the last two weeks that reminded me of why we spent so much time here, and really why I think it's important for us to, to spend a little longer uh, in this, this chapter. It's just because uh, this is one of those things that's difficult, I think, for us to understand. And it's good for us to talk about both the challenge... And the opportunity of spiritual growth, because it, it really is both. That whenever we have an opportunity to grow, it also uh, becomes sometimes of a challenge. These conversations each started with someone kind of revealing just the mysterious and strange process of what it looks like to try to grow spiritually. Any of you feel like it's just really obvious how to grow spiritually and make everything come together for your own your own personal spiritual growth and development and maturity? Uh, most of us, I'm just going to guess, feel like. Sometimes it's a little tricky. Sometimes it's not always just something very simple. And uh, These these friends that I was talking to, some had hurts from the past that just seemed to haunt them they didn't know how to let go of. Some had family members that were struggling with addictions. Uh, Some had just difficulties in terms of life circumstances and things that had happened. And some had deep fear and anxiety about the things that were going on in their lives. And these were just... These are just conversations that all bubbled up naturally just through friendships and relationships and talking to people. But they all started off and said things like, you know, I'm sorry I have to lay this on you. Like, I'm sorry that I have to tell you about this. Or I know I shouldn't think this way, but. Or I don't know why I'm feeling so intensely right now. Or maybe I don't know why I can't feel anything right now. But these are all the conversations I was having this week. And here's what I want you to know. Those are all really normal feelings and thoughts and conversations for Christians to have. Because when we get saved, it doesn't immediately zap us into a place where everything just spontaneously turns into immediate glory. And in fact, these are just incredibly normal things that we all wrestle with. Any of you relate to to what it feels like to just wrestle with the reality of life in a broken world? And you read sometimes the things on scripture and you're like, yes, I want all that. And then you go like, how do I get all that into like all of this that I'm experiencing right now, like into my day to day? And how do I, how do I get this to work out in the way I want to? And what we see is that sometimes our approaches don't give us the comfort, the strength, the confidence that we really need. We need to reorient ourselves around a truth that's, that's stronger than we are. So let's look at God's Word together. We're in Colossians chapter 3, and as we dive in there, today what we're going to talk about is that if we're going to grow towards a deep, meaningful life in Christ that reshapes our virtue and our morality and who we are, we are going to need a deep life reorienting around the grace of God. And we spent the last four weeks looking at this, uh, these 17 verses, so I'm not going to spend as much time today kind of engaging the, the ins and outs of the text uh, we're going to step back a little bit and just kind of look at how do we apply this? Like how do we practically take the things we've been looking at for three weeks and try to flesh it out into our life? So I'm going to give you, and this is going to scare you if you know me as a preacher. I'm going to give you two dangers, uh, one key principle, and seven realistic expectations for spiritual growth. Just going to warn you, the seven are going to go fast. So if you get nervous when I do three and it takes a while and you're like, oh man, we may never leave today, Um, I promise we're going to get to the end. But let's start off, talk about two dangers in our spiritual growth and in our spiritual lives. Well, it happens in Colossians 3, it talks about our spiritual life, that God, by his grace, has started something new in us. And by faith, uh, we've been born again, we've become new creations, we've started this new journey of life with God, we're beginning to learn what it looks like to do. life with him and in that we have to learn to submit our lives to him so we're putting off some old stuff we're putting on some new stuff and as we're learning to begin to kind of get rid of all the bad morals and things we used to do and try to put on all the the new stuff and try to do better with our lives there there's a temptation that oftentimes happens we begin to drift into kind of a self-centered focus that makes us think all of this depends upon us and how well we can do and we drift into dangerous territory of in the realm's of what I call pretending and performing. And in fact, Jesus told us a story about these two dangers. And he talked about this in Luke chapter 18. It says, Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were self-righteous, that they were righteous in and of themselves. And they began to treat others with contempt. Jesus' story went like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collectors. I mean, I fast twice a week. I tithe and give tithes of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man walked away justified, not the other man because the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So let's talk about Jesus' story just a bit. Um, The Pharisee's the bad guy, if you didn't know. Like that's always the way it seems to work in the Gospels, that the Pharisee's the bad guy. Truth is, the Pharisees were a lot like us. They were people who took God's word seriously. They were people who wanted to follow God. They were people who said, I want to do all the right things and I want to be better and I want, to, I want to make my life work and I want to try to honor God in the way in which I live and they're devoted to that. And so in some ways they're a lot like us and yet this Pharisee is clearly the bad guy in the story and Jesus gives this example of the Pharisee to warn us of the dangers of pretending and performing. So let's talk about those two dangers. The first is pret- uh, pretending. Notice what the Pharisee said. I thank you that I'm not like the other man. You first, you notice where the, where the Pharisee is standing? It says the Pharisee standing by himself, very confident, very very together. isn't hesitating, isn't like hemming and hawing. He, he steps up and just says, hey, I'm just glad I'm not like those other people. They're really, they're really bad sinners. You notice how much pretenders are good at hiding. They're good at kind of concealing what's true. They're good at sort of disguising the things that are there. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what's the first thing Adam and Eve did? says they went and hid. They took fig leaves and they tried to cover their nakedness. That they, they, they tried, to, they tried to, to mask what the reality of their life was so that God wouldn't really see. And God walked in and was like, Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know. Kind of like when you're a kid and you, you ever had little kids and they like hide and they go to the middle of the room and they like get under a blanket and you walk in and you're like, you know, Jake, where are you dude? It was happened like last week for Jake. Uh, my, my, just kidding. But your kids, when they're little, they try to hide, and it's obvious you know exactly where they are. Um, we don't really hide ourselves very well, do we? This is what you see with people that pretend, is the Pharisees not very good at hiding. In fact, God, Jesus later says that the Pharisees are just like everyone else, that, that he came in order to bring health or bring healing or bring redemption to everyone, but you have to first acknowledge that you're a sinner. And so if you don't own that, you can't, you're never going to come to the doctor to be healed but they also exaggerate. They think and talk more highly of themselves than they ought to because they don't really have it all together. They just pretend like they do. Um, Sometimes they minimize their sin or their circumstances and go, well, my sin really isn't that bad. Like that dude sins, like he's jacked up, but my stuff, it's really not that bad. He's just kind of like a little lapdog. Like my sin's really not that that terrifying. Um, So we begin to mask it. This is what pretenders do. You know what the dangerous kind of underside or underbelly of a pretender is? It's shame. They're they're guided by shame because they don't think that people will accept the real them. They don't think that God will accept the real them. So they pretend and they hide what they are because they're not free. Let's look at the second danger, performance. Performance. A performance is, is a little bit akin to pretending. It just takes on a little different flavor. That's what the Pharisee says. He says, hey, I fast twice a week. I do, all the, I do all the important religious stuff. I had a quiet time six out of seven days. Not seven because that'd make me like a Pharisee, but I did six and I want you to know that. So he says, you know, I fast twice a week. I, I do even more than what, I'm, what I have to. Um, I tithe, I give to the church in, in everything I'm supposed to. Um, performers are really good at Keeping up appearances and a respectable image. They're trying to impress others. Let me me show off how spiritual I am and all the good stuff that I can do so that you think highly of me. I think this one's actually harder in a social media-driven world. We are so image-driven. But it's even like we, we perform and then we have to like take a selfie of our performance and make, make sure everyone else knows it. But we have to do it in kind of a humble brag sort of a way. So we've become incredibly adept at how to navigate these territories of I'm going to perform and pretend to look really spiritual. You know what the underbelly of a performer is? Um, is fear. The underside of being a performer is fear. That I'm afraid that they're going to find me out. I'm afraid that you might realize I'm not as smart, beautiful, good, and strong as I pretend to be. And so we perform, and we perform, we keep working because we have to earn your acceptance. We have to earn your love. And we're afraid that we're going to get exposed. The problem with both of these approaches is that neither one of them breathes life into our souls. They actually prevent our growth. And the reason calls uh, Jesus calls self-righteous people whitewashed tombs is because they prettify the outside while they're staying lifeless on the inside. So it's all external, that externally you made everything look just right, but internally there's, no, there's death, there's no life, there's nothing that's flourishing on the inside. On the other hand, what do we learn about the spiritual life from the tax collector? You know, where is the Pharisee, it said, stood by himself? Where's the, where's the tax collector stand? He felt like an outsider. He stood way off you ever felt like that in a spiritual community or in church community? Like, man, I don't know that I belong. I don't know that I fit in. I don't know that I'm accepted just as I am. Says he stood off on the outside. What do we see in him? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He he owns his neediness before God. He owns the fact that he needs mercy and he asks, comes to the Lord and asks for it. What is it Jesus says? This is the one that will be justified, not the other one. This is the one that I will look on and that will be exalted. It's interesting too when you look at uh, when you look at this um, th- this tax collector, it's interesting that he says he beat his chest, which means like he felt it deep down. This wasn't something that was external, but he's saying he's beating his chest because he's saying, God, I'm a sinner. At my core, I understand who I am. And he was dealing with something here. Friends, here's what, I, what we need to see from this. That it's only when you experience firsthand the mercy and grace of God and become captivated by his goodness that your heart is really changed. That when you firsthand experience the mercy of God as one who comes and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you receive his grace, that it does something on the inside of you deep down that begins to reorient your life and, and send you in a different trajectory. So that's our two dangers. This actually leads us to the one concept or one principle that I want you to get today. We look at that in in, uh, 3.17. So back in Colossians 3, verse 17 says this. It's a really simple verse. Uh, It's a kind of a summary statement for everything we've seen up to this point in Colossians 3. In fact, verses 1 through 16, everything points up to to 17. And 17 kind of puts a bow on it all and and wants us to understand uh, kind of what all of this has been about. Notice what it says. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The verses 5 to 11 uh, contain kind of one category in this passage, and then verses 12 to 16 give you the other side. 5 to 11, it starts off and it says, you have to put off all the bad stuff. So like, you've been changed. God's made you a new person. You have a new identity. You've been given a new humanity. And in that, your old clothes don't fit. They're not appropriate for who you are now. And so you need to take off your old clothes and shed them. And then that's what, was what he talks about in verses 5 through 11. And then verses 12 through 16, he says, now you need to put on new clothes that look like Jesus, that are fitting and appropriate to what God is making you to be. And so you put off the old, you put on the new. And it's interesting because these are the do's and the don'ts of the Christian life, Right? Like, it's kind of the rules. Like, don't be, uh, you know, put off sexual immorality. Don't give yourself to all that stuff. Stop talking like a jerk and be a kind, compassionate person. So you need to put on the good stuff and look like Jesus, his compassion, his kindness, his generosity. You have to put off the old stuff that you used to do that no longer should typify your life. And so he gives us this kind of list of do's and don'ts. Here's the interesting thing. You realize that there is a God-given moral code in the universe. Like we are actually called to godliness. And we're called to godliness because we're created by God and he wants to guide us into a life of wholeness and fullness that he created us for. So there are rights and wrongs in the world, but here is the point that we see in 17. Christianity can never be summed up by a list of rules. That it always somehow goes beyond the list of do's and don'ts. That it always goes to what, a higher principle that governs it all and that principle is love. Friends, love is true. Is the only thing that's truly compelling enough and consistent enough to cause you to act in a different way. You're never going to earn or pretend or perform your way into a right standing with God. It's going to have to happen because you've been impacted by His grace and you love the Lord. We obey the Lord because we love the Lord. That's what, that's what 17 is trying to get us to say is that the, the, whatever you do in word or deed, that's my life, Right? Like, whatever you do, that's your life. That's the things that that you're living for right now. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's my goal, the glory of Christ. I want to live for the name of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's my motivation. That's why I do what I do. We don't do what we do in order to earn God's love, but we do it out of thankfulness, out of response, out of reply to what we've already received from him. Friends, you understand that the Christian life is supposed to be a joyful life? Like, God's grace is a comedy. Like, I mean, think about the things, the truths that we see in the scriptures. While you're enemies, God made you a friend. Like, how does that make sense? You did everything wrong and couldn't earn your salvation. He calls you righteous in Jesus. Like, you blew it and you ran away from the Lord, and he came and rescued you through the sacrifice of his only son. Like that stuff is supposed to make you just go like, what in the world? Like what kind of God would come and give his only son to rescue and to redeem me? This is a hilarious gift that I can't even wrap my brain around. And so thankfulness is the, is the right response that's supposed to be there. I mean, think about all that you've been given. You sinned and he said, I forgive you. That's enough, right? You were dead and he said, I made you alive. That's enough. You were blind and now you can see. Like all of those things that we receive from him, they should naturally cause us to respond with gratitude. They should bring joy to our life where it should be like, I can't believe how good this is that I've got it because of Christ. And so I want to honor his name with how I live because I love him for for who he is and all he's already done for me. I'm not doing it in order to earn my way, but I'm doing it because he's already made a way for me. You understand Christianity doesn't give us a comprehensive set of rules because a changed heart wants to live in Him in everything we do, as it says in 17. So friends, do you see how this principle is really at the heart of our, like if we want to live a virtuous life, if we want to live a moral life, if we want to become better individuals, do you see how this principle is at the very heart of Christian faith? That it starts with our response to Him, and it's this fundamental shift in how we live, in who we're striving for, how we're responding, and how we're trying to do this that makes all the difference. Um, Several years ago, several years ago, sorry, a lot of years ago, my wife and I have been married about 30 years, we dated about three years before that, so going back to like the beginning of when I was just getting to know Nan, uh, we were starting a relationship and we started to date and I'd invited her over and I don't remember the whole circumstances but she'd been over at my apartment and I was, we were going out and I was going to drive her home to her apartment back across Waco and as we got ready to leave, this torrential downpour hit. So me and my three roommates scrounged together the one umbrella we could find in our apartment. I was like, dude, you're on your own. I got a girl. I got to have the umbrella. So I took the umbrella, popped it open out the front door, and, you know, it was going to get Dan. We're going to go down, uh, kind of down the stairs to go get in the car. And as we do, we start to step out. I, I still remember this moment. She just, she walked out of the, um, uh, underneath the, into the rain, under the umbrella, and she kind of snuggled up against me really tight underneath the umbrella. So we're like right here, really snuggled tight. Then we had to like do the whole shimmy down the stairs all together under the umbrella, trying to keep trying to keep dry. And I honestly think like it was the first time maybe we had ever touched. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it was like the first time we'd ever had that experience. And I just remember thinking, this girl likes me. You know, like when he pulled the umbrella up and she snuggled up really close, I was like, Man, this is going well. Like, I wasn't sure, but I wasn't sure how it goes. And ladies, let me just tell you, guys are clueless. Like, guys, when they go on a date, they come back to their apartment, and they're like, how'd it go? And they're like, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But whenever you snuggle up against them under an umbrella, I was like, oh, like, this is going well. So got her home. But, you know, I just thought, this is the beginning of love. Like, we are going to fall in love and get married. This is how it all starts. It was right there in that moment. That was how it all began, believe it or not. Now, you understand that story. Now, let me tell you if, if we changed that story and made it into a really different story. Now, imagine that after all that was done, and we'd snuggled up and kind of got down, and I got her back to her apartment, and I said, so, this thing's going pretty well. You want to go out tomorrow? And she starts hemming and hawing, and she goes, yeah, I don't know. I got a lot of plans. And I'm like, what about, like, Monday? And she's like, oh, I got, I got to study. And then, you know, what are you? Kind of, and it's clear. She's giving me the stiff arm and just going, like, no, I'm really not interested. And I ask her. What happened? I thought we were like, you snuggled up really close to me. I thought we were, things were going so well. And she said, well, I just got my hair done. I had a big event. I was really just trying to make sure that my hair didn't get wet. It really didn't have anything to do with you. It just had to do with how I was trying to be self-protective and make sure nothing happened. Now, think about those two scenarios. The circumstances were exactly the same, right? Like, we both were there. We both snuggled up. We both got under the umbrella. We both stayed out of the rain. We both walked down the stairwell. But the outcomes were radically different, weren't they? Because one was grounded in love and the other was grounded in self. Do you see what a difference that makes? The same is true in our spirituality. That whenever it's something that we do that we sort of tend to snuggle up to God because it's like, well, I just want to stay dry. Like, I just want the good life. I just want these things to happen, but it's not really about God. It's just about self. It has a very different feel than when it's trying to get close to God because we love him because we want to have a relationship with him. Friends, there's lots of reasons why people choose to be moral, choose a virtuous life. Uh, People can be moral for themselves. Some people are moral out of fear, uh, because they're uh, they're just think if I'm not good, God won't bless my life. If I don't do all the right things, my kids are going to turn out wrong. But it's really built more out of fear, and so they're trying to be good, but it's not out of love. It's grounded in something different. Other people are more a lot of pride, so they can think of themselves as virtuous. They can think of themselves as as charitable, generous people. So on one level, they're sort of kind and generous, and they practice charity, and they practice generosity, and yet it's kind of this fundamental self-centeredness that really is driving their morality. It's not really a love for God and a love for goodness in and of itself. It's trying to get something back from that. And what Colossians 3 says, And honestly, the entire Bible is trying to get us to see is that life or morality or system of virtue built upon self will never really produce the life that we want. Like it's not going to lead us to flourishing. It's not going to lead us to joy. To joy it's not going to cause us to thrive. And when we fail to trust the gospel and read our identity and what Jesus has already done for us, we inevitably start slipping back into those dangerous realms of pretending and performing. I have to do these things in order to stay safe in order to get the results that I want. And so we think if we're only better Christians, then God would love us more or bless us more or protect us more or give us the life that we want or free us from the things that we don't want. The problem with the performing and the pretending dangers, though, is that they're just not very strong. Because when, you're, when, you're strength, when your security is as strong as yourself, then you're in a precarious position. from 30 years of doing this, here's what I see. That when we live in this kind of a way, it works. It gives us a false sense of security for a very short amount of time. But then, inevitably, we get tired. We go through depression. Our circumstances of our life get blown up in some way. We hit a struggle that we're not big enough to beat. And all of a sudden, we begin to panic. We begin to despair. We get discouraged. Because our strength was only as strong as us. And friends, you need a strength outside of you that's better and stronger and more stable than you can ever be. That's where true virtue comes. It comes from ultimately being captivated by God, being captivated by his beauty, by his goodness, by his grace, and allowing that external beauty to influence who you are so that you begin to live in a different way. Tim Keller says it this way, kind of riffing on something Jonathan Edwards said years and years ago. He said, True virtue comes when you see Christ dying for you, keeping a promise that he made despite the infinite suffering it brought him, On the one hand, that destroys our pride. He had to do this for us because we were so lost. On the other hand, it also destroys our fear because if he'd do this for us while we were his enemies, then he values us infinitely and nothing we can do will ever wear out his love for us. Consequently, our hearts are not just restrained, but changed. Their fundamental orientation is transformed. Friends, do you see how that works? When you understand what Christ has done for you, that He loves you, that He loved you when you didn't deserve it, then it eliminates uh, then it eliminates all your pride. It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I just can come to Him as a sinner. I don't have to earn it. He loved me when I didn't earn it. But it also eliminates our fear, because if He gave everything, if He gave the cost of His Son, an infinite sacrifice for you, then He's not going to withhold anything from you. So you don't need to fear. So there's a freedom that comes and it begins a fundamental shift in who we are. That's why verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When it says the word of Christ, it means the gospel. Let the truth of God's love for you and the truth of who God is dwell in you richly. And it means to let the truth of God's goodness and his grace move into your heart and take up residence there with full ownership of the place. It means you give God squatter's rights to your heart. You're like, God, you, you can just take over here, you can own it. I'm I'm never going to kick you out. You've you've taken up residence here and you can run around in every room, nook and cranny of my life and I don't have to fear that. I'm going to let the gospel dwell in me richly, deeply, allow him to take over and live there. It's why verses one to four, Paul talks about seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Seeking things that are above is of your heart. With your heart, seek not just the place, it's, it's the person. Seek where Christ is. Set your mind on the things that are above because you need something outside of you to ultimately be your strength and give you the strength that you need for life. Whereas do you understand that if our hearts have been captivated by God's beauty, by his character, by his grace, that's going to naturally lead us to want to put off the things that don't look like the beauty of God and to put on the things that look like God. So we, that's why we, we begin to live a virtuous life is we want to, we want to look as beautiful as God is. We want to look as good as God, because not because we're earning it, but because if that's who he is, why would I want anything that, that, that opposes the goodness of God to be a part of my life? And why would I not want everything that looks like God to be, to be uh, completely a part of my life? So that's why we begin to, uh, that, that's the, the key principle. So I know you're nervous, We have got seven things to hit. We hit two dangers, we got the one key principle. Um, let's jump in and look at seven reasonable expectations for spiritual growth. And we're going to run through these quickly as we just kind of remind you of some truth. And I, I, man, as I studied this week, I'm like, there's so many verses. i to look at this and like, I just want to like unload it and just keep firing at you, like shotgun material, just shooting Bible verses at you. But we're going to hit a couple of them. But I want you to absorb these truths because I think this is the reality of what life feels like when you're in the in-between times and you're trying to figure out how it is that... Um, that you can grow spiritually. Uh, the first expectation is struggle is inevitable. Can I get an amen? And you guys were a little better than the first hour. First hour, I got nothing. But like, we don't really want struggle to be a normal thing. But think about this, that I think th- this ought to be both encouraging and a little bit discouraging because God isn't gonna zap you and take away all the hurt or all the struggle or all the, all the challenge. But it's also encouraged because if you struggle, you're in a normal place. Struggle in the spiritual life is inevitable. In fact, what we see um, is, is that Paul exhorts us to, to put off the old and put on the new. What he's saying is there's a process you go through of struggling to learn how to live this new life. That God's made you new, but you still have to work it out and, and, and kind of put that into, a pre, into the practice of your life. Uh, in terms of theological terms, um, if, if you think, I'm gonna go systematic theology on you in just a minute, so just put your big, big brain on real quick. Big umbrella categories called salvation. Salvation is what God is doing for us through Christ. He's saving us. Now, in that under that umbrella of salvation, there's kind of three aspects of that. One is justification. The the other is uh, second is sanctification. The third is glorification. And justification, sanctification, glorification together make up our salvation. Oftentimes, we talk about salvation. What we mean is just our justification. Here's what justification means. It means that you were justified before God. You were put into a right standing before God, not because of anything you had done, but because of Christ and all that he has done for you. Meaning God declared you righteous. You didn't earn it, but God gave it to you as a gift. And so you receive his righteousness. It's what we saw in, uh, when, you, when you look back at Colossians, uh, Colossians 2. It begins to talk about um, the way in which God has, has worked in our lives. It says that we were made alive together with him, Having, he's, because he had forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, these he set aside, nailing them to the cross. It means Jesus nailed to the cross everything that we did, every debt that we owed, everything was paid, it was all finished. We are justified and called righteous before God, not because of the righteousness we have, but because of the righteousness of Christ we receive as a free gift. That's justification, right? Is that good news? Is it good to know that you no longer have to pay for your sins, but that Jesus paid for them all and there's no more debt because he already nailed them to the cross and they're all taken care of? That's good news. That's your justification. Now, I'm going to skip the second step, but I'm going to go over to glorification. You know what glorification is? It means that one day he's going to change you like this in all the sin and all the struggle and all the sorrow and all the stuff that you ever did. You're going to get rid of your old body. You're going to get a new body. You're going to have, get rid of the imperishable. You're going to put on the, or get rid of the perishable, put on the imperishable. Get rid of that which is mortal. You're going to put on the immortal. You're going to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth, and you're going to get to to romp all throughout the earth enjoying good food. You're going to get to run. You're going to get to sing. Uh, Guys that play sports are going to finally run a 4-4. I don't know if that's true, but I just like to hold on to hope still. But, like, all those things happen because you're made new, and it happens in an instant because you're glorified. Is that good news? So you're justified. Good news. God's done everything you need to do for your salvation. You're you're going to be glorified. He's going to redeem you. He's going to make all things new. He's going to get rid of all sin, all sorrow, all sadness, no more tears. You're going to live with him forever. Good news. We live right between those two times. There's still good news. But maybe it's not quite as quick as the other two. It's called sanctification. And sanctification is um, dealing with the already, not yet. Here's what I mean by that. We already... Have been forgiven. We already have been promised a future, but we're not yet there. So we live in in between. Philippians 3 says, But our citizenship is already in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to, to subject all things to himself. So we already are citizens of heaven, though we live in this world. So this is really home, but we still live here, but we're longing for that. You notice the word it uses. From it we await a savior because Jesus is at heaven in the right hand hand of the father. He's going to come back and he's going to take us home one day. But right now we're in the waiting time. That's an already not yet. So it's already true, but it's not yet fully ours. And that means we're already positionally hidden in Christ and God, but we've not yet fully let go of the world in which we still live. We're already new creations enjoying our new birth, but we're not yet experiencing life in the new heavens and new earth as we one day will. We're already justified and declared righteous in God's sight, but we're not yet glorified and actually made to be like Christ. We're in the in-between. In the in-between time, we're slowly being set apart and sanctified and changed to look more like him. That leads us to expectation number two. Repentance is continual. Now, when you first hear that statement, repentance is continual, be honest. Does that sound positive or negative? Most of us hear that as negative. We seem to like repent, the end is near, and like all the bad signs and all the stuff. And so we tend to hear that as negative. And yet Martin Luther claimed that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And he was pointing us to a lifestyle of repentance that turns this actually into a positive for us. So what repentance really is, it's an invitation for you to get to know God, to get to know his character, to get to know who he is, and to learn to live in light of that. And live it out in your own life. And in fact, it's, it means seeking to experience as much of the good life that he has for you right now. That you want to learn and trust his ways in, in the today. And sometimes the reason we have a negative feeling about repentance is that we've all experienced what, what I call false repentance. False repentance is really just a way back into pretending and performing. It means, it's when you say, I'm sorry, I'll do better. I promise I'll never do it again. If you just get me through this, then I will never stumble in that kind of a way again. and we're pretending and performing and we're putting on things that are still based on self and that's a false false repentance that doesn't really give us the security we need. But gospel or grace-based repentance is really different because it humbly comes to, to Christ and just says, "I know you've done everything for me, but I want to lay this down I want to lay this down in front of you and I want to take up that which is the new way and learn to live that learn to live it out. We need to allow our justification to guide our sanctification. So we trust what Jesus has already done so that we can walk with him even now. Third, relationship is essential. You know, it's interesting if you look at the scriptures over and over, it talks about our relationship with God. That if we're going to repent regularly and be invited back into relationship with him, um, and that restores us, then we're to enjoy him forever. And Psalm 63 says, oh God, you are my God. Sincerely, I seek you. I thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Friends, can you can you say a prayer similar to that? Like, is God your God? Do you talk to God in these kinds of ways? Just go, man, I'm thirsty. And this world is so dry and I'm so weary from life as it is. Would you somehow... Would you somehow quench my thirst? Would you would you renew me? Would you restore me? Would you bring new life to me? That's the, the picture that you're meant to have. In fact, John 4 says, an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. You guys believe that? That the, the, the Father, your Father in heaven is is seeking in the earth people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. He, he desires your worship. He created you for worship, not because he needed it, but because it was enjoyable for us. Fourth, growth is intentional. Y'all understand that like you don't ever just step outside in the morning and spontaneously combust into spiritual maturity? This is not the way it works. It takes intentionality. It takes us uh, giving ourselves. In fact, Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, is, who works within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Somehow God works in us, but in that, we're to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. uh, We're meant to to be uh, effective in our own growth and in seeking that and intentional in our own growth. The gospel is opposed to earning your salvation, but the gospel is not opposed to effort because you've been saved. If you understand you're standing before God that you've already been saved, the gospel is not opposed to us giving effort and intentionality to try to grow. He actually invites us to grow. He wants us to seek him. That's why Philippians 3 says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you feel the intentionality in that verse? It's an athletic metaphor. Like I'm forgetting the last play and I'm gonna press on I'm setting my face for heaven. I'm setting my face for the finish line. I'm gonna give everything I got to to run after the finish line as strongly as I can because we need to be intentional about our growth. Number five, maturity is gradual. You ever watched an oak tree grow? Exciting stuff. Just not, it doesn't seem like a lot happens. And yet it's one of the strongest living things that we experience in life, isn't it? A lot of times our growth feels like watching an oak tree grow. And it just doesn't happen very fast. Uh, we we rarely see our growth in real time. But friends, can I encourage you? that God is always doing 10,000 things you don't even see. There's times where you're going, man, I feel like I'm failing and I'm not getting any progress here. And God's going, but I'm making you more humble over here. You're like, man, I really wish God would do this thing in my life. And he's like, well, but I'm working on this other thing over here. And sometimes our perspective is just not right. We don't see things the way we do because we're in the mix of life down here and we don't see what is happening. And so sometimes it feels very mundane. It feels repetitious. It feels like it's going on forever. Uh, you know what? I use a screwdriver and you go to a screw and you stick screwdriver and you just turn it. You know, that motion's very repetitious, isn't it? You just, you turn it and you turn it again and you turn it again. And if you're looking at it from above, it doesn't look like anything's happening, Right. What's going on under the surface? With each repetition, it's actually going deeper. It's becoming more rooted. It's becoming stronger and more grounded in the board. And so, oftentimes, with our spiritual life, we need to see that our maturity is gradual. That you just keep showing up, keep going. Open your Bible again today. Get up and pray again. Um, Say, uh, "God, would you forgive me for this?" And begin to to seek Him in a new way. And you just keep going. And you keep going, trusting that he's deepening your faith in a way that possibly you don't even see. Number six, glory is eventual. Philippians 1 6. I'm sure of this that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, God's not done with you yet. What he began, he's gonna finish. God doesn't God halfway do anything. God's gonna get you all the way to the finish line. He doesn't he doesn't start taking off, running, and then fumble. Like God's going to get you there. So he began a good work. He'll, he'll continue to perfect it. Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Since one day you're headed for glory. Lastly, reward is incomprehensible. Since you have to believe in the spiritual life as you grow that God's going to reward if you seek him. And I know sometimes you don't get, we, we live in a world that wants immediate results and we don't always get immediate results. So it's hard to keep showing up. It's hard to keep going. That's why the, the scriptures continually remind us uh, of things like be steadfast immovable, um, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your va- your labor is not in vain. Keep going. Hebrews 1 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he that he lives and he rewards those who seek him. Friends, God's going to reward you in ways that you can't even fathom in in this world right now. But the reward's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth everything that you pour in. Um, So let's seek him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory. Giving thanks to the Father through him. That's our motivation. He's already done it all. We just are walking into the future he has for us. So let's let's go give him the glory and let's seek him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends that are here and friends that are watching online and friends that couldn't be here today. And I just pray that you would make this come alive to us at a deep place in our hearts. Father, would you, would you convict us of your great love for us, of your mercy and of your grace, and of your goodness that we'd be so overwhelmed by your beauty, that we would want to put off all the old stuff and put on new stuff that looks just like you. Father, and until that day comes when we're glorified and look like Christ, would you would You strengthen us? Would you give us patience? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst for your presence, for your glory? Would you motivate us out of thankfulness and gratitude to be a to, to serve you and to seek you out of joy. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.